this afternoon because everyone right now is high on Skittles and lolly snakes and whatever. And sometime in the next half an hour, I feel like everyone's going to crash at the same time from the sugar overload. And so I'm racing against the clock here. But uh, what we're about to do now is, if you are new here, what we do every single week at City Light. We devote a, a chunk of time as we gather together to read the Bible and then think about it and work out really in, in these words that were written 2,000 years ago, how is it that God is speaking to us today? And it is in the Bible that God does speak. And so over this next little while, as I get up here, and my job is just to help us understand this and to explain this thing, I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you. So if you've got your Bible there, leave it open. If it's on your phone, leave that like logged in, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, it'll be up on the screen as well. And, and let's, just, let's set aside this time to really let God speak to us, to let, to let him say to, to every single one of us what he has to say. And so I'm just going to pray now before we get straight into this. Uh, that God will be with us and helping us. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in a space where we are safe and secure to, to look at your word and to listen to you. And I just ask that you would be speaking to us and you know what we need to hear today. You know what every single one of us needs to hear from these, from these words and so have us ready to listen, have our minds clear and our eyes open to, to recognize the truths that you have in your word and to help us get them and, and get them with our heads but also get them with our hearts. And so, so we pray, Lord, right now that you'd be with us. You'd be with me as I speak and us as we listen to your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've ever had a sort of situation where you've you found yourself in a group of people where you just really do not feel like you belong. Uh, for me, this happened you know, in a very real way a couple of weeks ago. One of my friends, uh, Josh, who used to be a church here, works for a, a, a kind of coffee roasting company in Sydney. And he sent me a message and he said, um, hey, hey, dude, are you free this afternoon? Do you want to come along to a coffee cupping? Now, I quickly Googled what a coffee cupping was. Um, it's just a coffee tasting. I don't know why it's not called a coffee tasting. It's called a coffee cupping. And I was like, you know, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I had nothing on in the afternoon. And it seemed like a good opportunity to go and like, upskill my coffee knowledge so I can have good input and, and critical things to say as I drink coffees around Balmain. And so I, I had a picture in my head of what it would be. I thought it would be quite nice. I, I pictured a bunch of kind of coffee machines maybe around a big room, some different like baristas there making flat whites to people. When you get handed a flat white, you take a sip, you're like, yep, that's a coffee. And then, uh, and then you, you, you chat with your friends and that kind of thing. So I rocked up to this place and, and he met me at the door. And the first thing he said was, hey, just so you know, if anyone asks, I put you down as the barista from the general, which is a cafe. And I was like, why would you need to put me down as a barista for, for, for a cafe? And he's like, oh, I didn't mention this. Is, this is just um, an exclusive event for the baristas of, of the cafes that we service in Sydney. And so I was like, why am I here then? Like, why didn't you tell oh, you send me a message and now I'm here? He said, no, I'll be fine. So we go inside and, and it's just not what I had prepared myself mentally for. It's just a table kind of, that everyone kind of stands around. It's got about 20 cups on it. Each cup just has some ground-up coffee beans when you walk in. They then just tip some hot water on top of the beans and let it settle for about 10 minutes. And then basically the whole event is you go around, you get given a spoon and a cup, you take turns, you kind of scoop out a spoonful of lukewarm coffee water, slurp it, spit it in a cup, and then move on to the next, the next thing. And if you like, and I quickly realised the problem with this, that I'm now dipping my spoon into the cup that someone else has already dipped a spoon in before me. And in the second cup, I'm dipping in my spoon that I've slurped off into something that's had two people before. And so after about 25 minutes of this, you left it at a cup that's had about 25 people's dirty spoons in lukewarm water. 
and going at it. But that, I, I wasn't comfortable with that. But, but, but more than that, I just wasn't comfortable because after each thing, you'd have to talk about what you're kind of sensing in this coffee. And people would say, oh, you know, oh, the, the acidity of this one is, is, is far more full than, than, the, than the Bolivian coffee over there. And I'm just thinking, they all just taste like really bad coffees. It's just like dirty coffee water. And so I had to keep my mouth shut this whole time in this hope that no one would notice that I don't really belong. And it wasn't comfortable. That's a really trivial example, but I'm sure for most of us, there have been points in our life where we've feel, we felt the feeling of not belonging. And sometimes that feeling can actually be quite unpleasant. The, the, the hurt that comes with feeling like you don't belong to a particular social circle, say at, at, back at school or at, or at uni or in, in the workplace, can be, can be hurtful. The sense that I, just, I don't fit into this place. The loneliness that can come if you feel like there is just nowhere in your life you have a sense that you belong is painful. And a huge part of our lives is devoted to trying to identify what is this group of people, where is the place where I will truly feel like I belong, where I will feel like I'm loved and needed and appreciated, and this is my place and these are my people. What we're going to see in this passage that Gab just read to us is that Paul is trying to say the church is the place where everyone ought to truly be able to say that they belong. That that's what the church is, that's what it is for. And I'm aware as I'm saying this that for many of us, that may not have been your experience of church. Uh, you may have been to, to churches where you feel like you, you don't belong, where you, think, you look around and say, what am I doing with this bunch of people? I have nothing in common, we don't seem to click, they don't seem to offer me anything, I don't offer them anything, why am I there? You may have felt that. You may have even felt heard and rejected by churches before. And so as we get into this passage, what we're going to see is, is that's not what the church should be like. And my hope is that you'll give just this time to looking at what Paul says and try and understand what the vision he has for the church. Now, reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've said over the last few weeks we've been going through it, is a bit like listening to half a phone call. This church in Corinth has written to Paul, the guy that started the church, with a bunch of questions about how they do church, what it means to be a Christian, all this kind of thing. And then Paul's written back this letter, which we're going through, with all of his responses. And so it's hard. You don't really get to see the question, but you get to see the answer. And it seems in this passage, the, the, the question that they are asking Paul is what is it that makes someone really a true part of the church? What makes someone valuable? What, what makes someone important? What makes someone needed in the church? And more specifically, there appears to be a, a group of people in Corinth that have, are pushing this view that there are, are some kind of visible uh, expressions of like, the spirit acting supernaturally in them, for example, in doing miracles or in, or in speaking in kind of languages that kind of only... God can kind of understand. And if you have these kind of things going on, that you are more valuable, you are, you are more in line with God, and that's what everyone should be aspiring to in the church. And because of this mindset in Corinth, what, what's happening is there's a division. There are people saying, look what I can do, I'm doing this, and it's great, you should be more like me. You've got some people feeling superior, and because of that, you've got a bunch of people that are starting to wonder, do I really belong? Is this where I'm meant to be? I'm not like that person over there, Am I meant to be in this church? And so Paul starts this, this answer. He's going to be answering this question for three, three weeks here at church, so three chapters. And today, though, what we're looking at is he starts this answer by just going back to the absolute foundations of what is the church. What is the church built upon? What holds us together? And he wants to remind the Corinthians why they are what they are. And his first point is that the church fundamentally is united. The church is united. And it's united because we have a shared experience 
of God working in our lives. So I want to start with verse 1 looking at it. We're going to gradually walk through everything that Gav just read. What Paul's going to say here is that if you're a Christian, there is something that has happened in your life that binds you with everyone else here. So we'll come up on the screen from verse 1. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, speaking the Spirit of God, ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. In a nutshell, what Paul is saying here is if you are a Christian, and not everyone here is a Christian, if you're not a Christian, we love that you're here and checking this out, but if you are a Christian here, you've experienced a radical change in your life. Paul says, before you're a Christian, you were led astray to mute idols. He's saying the default state that every human being finds himself in is in the worship of something that is not God. Our our default position isn't to worship the God who made us and and loved us. It's to find something else that we can latch onto and make everything in our life. That could be an inherited tradition or religion from our our parents. It could be um, some other kind of man-made worldview of what life is about. It could be as simple as finding something like money or stuff to pursue or this need to have a comfortable, leisurely lifestyle, or being liked or respected by different people, or having control of all the details in your life, we find something that we think, if we have this, everything's going to be okay. This is what life is about. I have to have this. And, and Paul is saying, that's what we all do. And the Bible, from cover to cover, talks about this idea of idolatry, of worshipping an idol, something not God, as, as tragic. Because the issue with this is, not only do you miss the meaning of life, why you're created while you live, but the Bible is clear that anything other than the one true God leads you to hell. The, the issue is that the worshipping something under, other than God distracts you from the, daily, from the reality that day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, whether we like it or not, we are getting closer to the day that we die. And when we die, we will come face to face with God, the God who made us, who will say, I made you with a purpose and I loved you and I I gave you a reason to live. But in in the way you've lived, in the way you've spoken, you've displayed that you don't want anything to do with me. And as a result of that, you're going to be spending an eternity without me. And and the horror that that eternity without God is is what the Bible calls hell. Paul is saying, before you're a Christian, you're on that path, led astray by mute idols. But then he says, if you're a Christian, that's not the case now. Paul knows that a a Christian is someone who who has decided to to worship Jesus as Lord, to make Jesus the most supreme, important thing in their life. And what Paul says is, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is, it's not that people can't say the words, Jesus is Lord, but no one has their heart changed to the point where, where what they're worshipping is Jesus, to the point where they can see that he is the most supreme, glorious, beautiful being in creation without something changing inside of us. And that change can only happen by God. And this is what the Bible calls regeneration. It's this idea that our default state, we were dead, that although we walk around and, and talk and eat and drink and and have fun and everything. We have all these signs of physical life that spiritually we're dead. Jesus says, yes, we're all born once in a physical manner, but in order to see him and know the truth of the good news of Jesus dying on the cross that we can be forgiven and getting that, we need God to do a work in our hearts. And Jesus says, that's being born again. And, and, 
And so this is probably, if you've been around for a while, this isn't anything new to you if you're a Christian, but what Paul is reminding you is that if you are a Christian, if you've had this change, if at some point in your life, uh, firstly, you've had your life orchestrated in a manner where you had a chance to hear the gospel and have it said to you in a way you understand, that that was God at work, but even more than that, it's him that changed your heart. It's him that changed your values. That, That you've been saved. The reality for the Christian is you have someone who has been saved. And no one is saved without the work of God in their life. Now, the reason that Paul is saying this is to, to remind us that you know, becoming a Christian isn't just signing up to a new kind of code of ethics or becoming more moral or, or signing off on some intellectual truths. It's, it's having a heart change. And if that's happened to us, it's happened to every Christian here, he's trying to say, look, we are united in having this experience. I'm not sure if anyone had a chance to see the movie Sully, which came out last year. Um, I saw it because it has Tom Hanks in it, and I see every Tom Hanks movie. But um, it tells the story uh, of in how 2009, United Airlines Flight 1549 took off from New York City Airport, and within a few minutes of taking off, struck a, a flock of birds which disabled both engines in the plane. And it was quickly apparent to the, to the crew on board that there was no time to actually get around back and land it at the airport. There was no airport within range without any engines operating. And so for every person on board, it was, they were aware that this is a plane that's going to crash. Uh, and so what this movie shows, and it, you know, it's a great story to, to, to dramatise, is that, that the captain, Chelsea Sullenberger, then with this plane with no engines managed to safely land it in the Hudson River, saving all 155 souls on board. And it's an amazing story. But the thing I remember most about this movie that kind of stuck with me and came to mind this week is that at the very end of the movie, so it's obviously it's dramatised as actors in it, at the very end of the movie, in the credits, they actually get the real passengers and crew and pilot all together for a reunion. And you get to kind of watch them talk about and reminisce about this experience that they've shared together. And, and one of the things that the, that the captain says is this. He says, because of the events of January 15, 2009, I am convinced that we will be joined in our hearts and in our minds forever. And, and it's true, isn't it? As you, as you look at these people and see a bunch of different ages and a different, obviously different ethnicities and obviously different backgrounds and personalities and interests that, that would have made up the passengers on that plane on that day, no matter how different they were from each other when they hopped on the plane in the morning, they have in common probably the most significant moment in their entire lives. They, they can share with each other the, the memory and the knowledge that they were almost certain of their death and yet got to share in the joy of basically a miraculous survival. And, and it unites them that they've had that together. For all of the external differences that they have, that this, this draws them together. And I think this is what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying, look, you think, you think this is evidence of the Spirit, you think this is the evidence of God in work in your life and all these external things. He's saying, just remember, if you've just been saved, if you've had your heart changed, that is God working in your life and you are united with everyone for whom that's happened as well. So that's Paul's first point. It's reminding you are united, the church is held together by the shared experience we have of knowing what it's like to go from death to life and being saved by God at work in our life. And it's from here that then he starts to talk about the differences. And the differences are secondary to that truth that holds us together. So we'll read the next section. From verse 4, Paul says this. 
Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So on one level, Paul's simply just listing out, look, it's just kind of obvious as you look around, people are going to be different. And the ways that God will work in us to give us what we need to do to serve one another is going to be different. And that might be in kind of inherent gifts that we might have, but it might just simply be, um, it says at the start, in, in, in the types of ways we serve each other, different types of service, or just different activities we might participate in. But there, there is going to be difference. But what he says in verse 7 is the thing that holds us together which is, which is why we have these gifts, why we're made different. And it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul is saying that the diversity that exists within the church is intentional. It's a, for a purpose. It's not a fluke. It's not random. It's not an accident that we're different. That the Spirit makes people different for the sake of the common good. We might be able to serve each other and function as a whole. Now, I try normally to avoid sports analogies because as soon as I start talking about sports, I'm in over my head. Um, it's not my area of expertise. I heard someone the other day describe sport as a waste of good grass, and I found myself resonating with that, with that sentiment. Um, but I'm currently playing in a netball team, which I would justify as being the best use for a dirty slab of concrete. So I'm feeling good about that. Anyway, what I do know about sports, I mostly know from watching Cool Runnings and the Mighty Ducks when I was a kid. And, and what I learned watching movies like this about these underdogs who, who end up pulling together and, and succeeding and having victory is that the key to a good team isn't necessarily having the most kind of obviously just great and impressive people. The, the key to, to a team winning is found in, in, a, in a team being a team, in actually working together in, in all of their different sort of ways. And so this is the key difference, right? If you've gone and seen you know, an under-six soccer game compared to seeing an adult soccer game, in the under six, the kids, kids all want to do the same thing. With the exception of the token unfit kid that you've stuck in goals, uh, every other kid is just running around chasing the ball. They all want to be the one on the ball. They all want to be the one getting the goals. But once you hit a certain age, you realise that's not how a team wins. A, a team wins when people know their role, when they know how they're meant to be serving, how they're meant to be contributing to this wider purpose going on. Paul is saying the way the Corinthians are carrying on making out like everyone should be a certain way, whatever that way is, is showing that they haven't understood the way the church is meant to be, which is diverse. And so as you look around at the people that make up this church, it's not an accident. It's not an accident that some people are inclined to teaching and others aren't. It's not an accident that some people uh, really love uh, serving the children out there and some don't. It's not an accident that some people know how to play music and others don't. It's not an accident that some people have money that they can give heaps of and others don't. It's not an accident that some people have big houses to welcome people in and others don't. Um, we're, we're different. It's not an accident that we, some of us have different views or opinions or personalities that we don't even click with right away. 
God has made the church different for a purpose because we need each other to serve each other. So we've seen two truths, right, that Paul's explained. Big picture, we're united because we have a shared experience of God working in our life. If you're a Christian, you've had God at work in your life. And then secondly, although we're the same in that way, we're meant to be different, and that's on purpose, and God makes us different because we need to be different to really achieve our, our combined purpose and love and serve each other. And so having laid, laid down that kind of groundwork, Paul just wants to show with a simple analogy why two attitudes towards church that are pretty common are wrong. And he uses an illustration um, in which he says this in verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So he says, just just think about your body and just reflect on the fact that you're not just a bunch of hands cobbled together, right? You're not just a bunch of eyeballs in a pile. You're you're an organism made up of different parts that do different things. Very, very simple so far. And, and, And he's saying that this is what the church is like. We're just like that. And up until this point, he's only spoken about difference in terms of like gifts and abilities, but he's making it clear here that that, that diversity is bigger than that. Because he says, uh, we're all brought together, whether we're Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. He's, he's saying that the diversity we have is, yes, of gifts, but it's just a background of culture, of, of just everything. And he's saying, what he's about to say in this analogy is that there are two attitudes you can have to the church that are wrong. The first is to say to the church that you don't need me, and the second is to say to the church that I don't need you. So the first, to say to the church, you don't need me. There is this sense that someone might have that because they can't do a certain ministry or, have a, or because they have a certain background or a certain personality or they just are a certain way in some way or another that they don't have anything to offer. And so look what Paul says in response to that idea. In verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul's saying we have a tendency to, to look at someone else and see some characteristic of them that we want to be and say, because I'm not them and not just like the way that they are in whatever way it is, that I'm, I'm less valuable, I'm less needed, I'm, I'm not as good as they are. I just want to be them. I'd be full if I was them. And his response to that is, no, that's not how it works. Every part of the body is arranged the way that God chose. Which means that you do belong. It means that you are valuable. It means that you are needed. So for the Corinthians, it's getting their head around the fact that if you're a slave, you're no less valuable or less important to the church than if you were a free person. That if you are dirt poor with no money to offer, you are not less valuable or less important to the church than if you were rich. If you are uneducated, you are not less valuable and less important than if you are educated. 
If you don't have a particular skill or a particular gift, you're no less important as if you were. See, one of the mistakes we can have as a church sometimes, and, and if we can fall into the trap of thinking, that what we really need is, is people with really just obvious kind of upfront skills. We need people who are just master organizers or, or really eloquent or fantastic musicians or come up with all these great ideas or just have mansions down by the water in Balmain to have the whole church over into or just tons of money they can just throw at any initiative that we want to start. And we think if we had people like that, our church would be great. Our church would move forward. But the church does not survive off the work of a few. The church survives off the countless small just acts and interactions of all the members of the body. Can you pray for someone? If you can pray for someone, you're needed here. Can you listen to someone? If you can listen to someone who is hurting, you are needed here. Can you welcome someone into your home? Or just be a welcoming face here or in someone else's home to someone who's joining our community? You are needed here. Can you offer advice to someone who's struggling through a situation? Then you are needed here. You are needed here. Do you know people who don't yet know Jesus? Then you are needed because we are trying to reach people with the gospel. There is so much need in this church. There is so many people hurting and broken and in need of love in this church. There is no way that a handful of leaders can, can address just the multitude of need that we have here. The only way that we're going to survive is through each other. There are people that need you to love them. There are people that need you to listen to them and spend time with them and serve them. You are needed by the church. And so if you're pulling away and saying, they don't need me, you're missing this. You're missing why you're a part of this church. This is what you were saved for, to come into the church and serve and love. Now, you may feel like, and I'm sure 100% there are people here, that maybe you feel like you've tried that. Maybe you feel like um, you've, you've, you've given it your best to kind of serve, and maybe you've been pushed away or haven't been appreciated, and you've just given up. Or maybe you've tried to love people and haven't felt love back. But Paul is saying in this analogy that, that no matter who you are, you, have a, you are needed. There are people here that will benefit from your presence. So that's, that's, that's the first thing that Paul says. There's no grounds for saying about the church, you don't need me. And the second, it cuts the other way. Uh, it's not just that you might say about the church, you don't need me, but it's saying to the church, look, I don't need you. So we'll read this, this, this final section from verse 21. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our far more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members that may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now, I think this is, like, just for the record, about as close as the Bible gets to humour. So, um, so you should be lapping it up. Like, you can just imagine that it would work in a comic, maybe a really poor comic, to have, you know, an, an eye shouting down to the hand, I don't need you. And you can imagine all of the first century Greeks 
cracking up with laughter. Um, you didn't have to do it. Like, we've come a long way. Humor's developed a lot. But, but this is what Paul was working with. And I think it is meant to be laughable because, like, it doesn't take much knowledge to know that an eye on its own is useless. Um, it would just sit there on the ground and, and wouldn't see anything even. Right? It just, what Paul is saying is, look, it, it's laughable, it's ridiculous for a single part of the body to say it has no need for the rest. And Paul's point is, it is equally ludicrous for any person to say that you don't need someone else in your life. To say that is to say you know better than God does. To say that is to say that you, unless you, are, you think you're some perfect, just well-rounded, completely just developed individual with no kind of flaws or issues and just able to just conquer any challenge that comes your way, and you need other people. And if you do think that, you're deluded, completely deluded. We need other people. We need the body. The church is made up of people that think differently. Now, if you are never with people that think differently, you will not grow in the way that you think about anything. Um, you'll you just stay the same. The church is full of people that have different things to offer because we are not self-sufficient. The church is... We need other people because we need love. We need love to, to live. Uh, and the church is the place where you can receive that. We need people. We need the church. We need the church as individuals. But even further than that, we need the church because it's through the church that God is going to achieve his ends for this world. Jesus didn't come and save you just so you could carry on with your life with maybe one or two Christian friends and just kind of wait out your days until he comes back or you die. Um, That is not Christianity. Jesus was really clear, and I don't know how people have missed the message throughout history, but seemingly people have. Jesus came to build a kingdom. He came to build a community. His entire life was building a network of relationships of diverse people that he was gathering together to implant this message of the gospel for them to continue to go out and multiply communities and this kingdom across the planet. And that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. And this community that Jesus is building is not built on the same principles and values of really any other society or, or culture that there is. Jesus came to start a completely new set of values for how we view people. Um, And in Jesus' kingdom, we're meant to value people whom the rest of the society doesn't. People whom most people wouldn't honour but would ignore and push aside. In the kingdom are the people that we should honour the most. And so if you don't have the church in your life, where are you going to be doing this? Where are you going to have an expression of this significant difference in, in how we build up a community? Everywhere else, people are judged on their merits. People are are, are valued by what they could give us, what they can do. But in the church, people are valued based on how Jesus sees them. The the way that our country works in in processing immigrants or people wanting to come here is trying to find the best and the brightest. We we want to accept people that will contribute to our culture. We want to find the doctors and the people that will make everything better. The church grows by finding the people that everyone else has forgotten and bringing them in. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great author, and he, he writes um, in, a, in a book, Life Together, which is a great book on Christian community. He says, the exclusion, in the exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seamlessly useless people from everyday Christian life in community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. For in the poor sister or brother, Christ is knocking at the door. 
the church is meant to, to run against the rest of the world in not having this hierarchy of values, not measuring people by what they can do. We, we want to be a place that welcomes in the poor and the rejected and, and the weird to be, to be a community that builds one another up and serves one another. And I think the church is the best antidote, antidote to living a boring life where you just guard yourself and surround yourself with kind of easy people to kind of live out the rest of your days and then die. Being a part of a church reminds you that, that life is going to involve loving people and loving people that are hard. So you need the church. If you don't have the church, you're not going to have this. And so my question is, does your attitude to church reflect this? Do you try to just go it alone um, and, and kind of keep people at, at arm's distance so you don't have anyone involved in your life? Or do you view people here because this is how God is, is going to actually grow you and change you and challenge you to be more like Jesus? Do you view the rest of the church as a burden? Just people who are trying to just take from you and make your life worse? Do you even view the church as people? Or is, when you think of City Light, is it just this building between 4 o'clock and 5.30 where you come and get your dose of church? How are we going at, at recognizing this reality that we are a diverse but united group of people? I just want to finish by saying I think this is of critical importance because the sort of church that's going to have an impact in the 21st century isn't the sort of church that maybe our grandparents would have gone to, where you just kind of go and you sit in a pew, you feel good about your spirituality, and then you get on with your life. People were sick of that 60 years ago, um, let alone today. The sort of church that's going to actually grow and see people get to know Jesus is going to be a church that echoes the way the church was 2,000 years ago a diverse group of people genuinely bound by the reality of the gospel and committed to genuine love and service of one another as we carry out our days in this world, seeking to grow the kingdom of Jesus. And when people see this kind of church, they'll know it's not just some vague spirituality where you're just trying to feel good about yourself and you know, go into this thing, but there's something radical, which there is, about the teachings of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Paul finishes by saying this picture of the church is one of, if one member suffers, then all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's having the sort of unity and belonging that means that, that your pains are my pains and my pains are your pains. And this is, this is a compelling vision of community. This is what people are yearning for. And it's not surprising that this thing that people are yearning for is, is solved in the way that Jesus said it would be, by, by his people in the church. So I want to encourage you, um, if you're a Christian here, to think about how you're viewing the church. Are, are you committed to it? Uh, to reflect on, on, on what your life is showing in regards to that. Um, and if you're somebody who's not a Christian, I, I know this has been just you know, a full-on thing to Christians on, on what the church should be, but I hope that's been helpful in, in, in seeing why it is that, that Christians do this. That this isn't just some like optional extra to the Christian life, but this is what... This is what life is for the Christian. This is what the church is. And if you're somebody who's still got a lot of questions, we, wanna, we always want to be open to kind of coming and speaking to us or writing a question down on those slips in your seat so we can keep following you up and talking to you. And we want to help you understand not just what church is, but what is the thing that holds us together, what Jesus has done for us. So I'm just going to have a, a, a time now. I'm just going to pray for us, and then there'll be a time to reflect. Um, you might want to think about uh, kind of how you've been treating the church. 
Um, is there anything in this that has challenged you? Some time of prayer, and then Gav will let us know what's going to happen next. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the reality of what the church is, that we are a body, that we are united by the Spirit and by this experience we've had of you saving us. I always pray we wouldn't forget that, we wouldn't forget what you've done for us, and as we look around at each other, we would see that reality in one another. And Lord, help us just continue to be committed to each other as, as people who are seeking to serve in whatever way we can. And we thank you that you've made us different, Uh, We thank you that we're not all the same. And we pray that we would know how much you have put us in this place to serve and love each other. And that as we all do this, we wouldn't just feel like we're constantly serving and loving others, but we would feel served and loved ourselves. That we would be a community that that echoes uh, the community that you started 2,000 years ago. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.